Would you pray with me? God, we need you. How we need you. Every hour we need you. Like that song says, you are our one defense. It's not a vaccine. It's not a candidate. It's not the world back to normal. You, God, are our one defense. You are our righteousness. And we live in your strong and unshakable kingdom. That kingdom is not in trouble. And so neither are we. This morning we, together, wherever we are at home, here in this room, we breathe deep, God, of you, the eternal current of your love and goodness and peace that knows no end, that was from the very beginning and is forever going to be. God, would you comfort those who need comfort? Would you strengthen us all as we feel weak? Would you humble us where we think too highly of ourselves? And would you help us all to see more clearly a vision of your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray together. Everybody said, amen. So you guys, when I was growing up, I uh, was in a church context where being a follower of Christ was synonymous with voting Republican. That was the megachurch of my upbringing. And uh, a little bit later in life, I found myself in circles where being a follower of Christ was synonymous with voting Democrat. And uh, I'm sure many of you can relate. Um, those were the cultures. Of course, both sides have their reasons, but here is what I can say of my experience. Neither were all that counter-cultural. Both feel to be all tangled up in the red, white, and blue. Both are seeking to fit the teachings of Jesus neatly into a political system rather than having my politics submit to the rule and reign of Christ and his kingdom. It feels to me like very often today we in the church are being shaped and defined by more of a passion for partisan politics than a passion for the bread and the wine. When we gather like this, together in worship, we are centering our lives over and over again on Christ and his kingdom. That does not mean that we're ambivalent or apathetic or avoidant about our world. The gospel is absolutely political, but it is not partisan. 
The gospel absolutely calls us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. As followers of God in the way of Jesus, we declare, along with followers of Christ all the way back in the early church and forward, that Jesus is Lord and therefore Caesar is not. And that proclamation that Jesus is Lord, that will get you into some good trouble, some necessary trouble if you take it seriously, because it's countercultural. If you take the teachings of Jesus seriously, you will find they will not fit nicely with the values of empire, any empire. There is not a tidy alliance of the teachings of Jesus with the left or the right. We pledge our allegiance to the King, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we live under the rule and reign of Jesus. We declare Jesus as Lord, and that claim is always going to be countercultural. In John 15, the passage uh, for today that Tim just read, Jesus tells us we must remain close to him. Throughout this whole section of scripture, it's almost like Jesus is saying over and over again, like, what is really defining you right now? What is really defining you? Jesus paints this very unified image in this passage, and it's more unified than an image of family. It's this picture of a vine and branches. Jesus is painting this unified picture of how our connection to God ought to define everything about our lives. And so Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. I'm the vine, you are the branches. So like branches coming out of a vine, we're not just in relationship with Jesus like a little add-on to all the other interests and identities of our lives. It's not like I'm American and I vote this way and I'm a Christian. Jesus is saying we are tied and united to him. Jesus is using this image to show that now it is himself not national identity, that defines God's people. What defines God's people? I am the vine, you are the branches. It is your connection with me that defines you, no longer your national identity that is the primary definition of who you are. Now, once again, it's like, what's defining you these days? Is it your faith? Is it your party? Jesus wants us to be so tied and united to him that our connection to Christ is the primary definition of who we are. Like, in other words, all the other identity markers, they're no longer primary. The other identity markers in our lives, they may still exist, but they fall under the lordship of Jesus, they fall under the rule and reign of Jesus because he is the vine and I am the branch. 
The rule and reign of Christ is now the ultimate allegiance in me. So as a result, you could say, I have a lot more in common with someone who votes differently than me and is connected to the vine. I have a lot more in common with someone who votes differently than me and follows Jesus than I do with someone in my same political party who could care less about Christ. The primary marker is my connection to Jesus. That's the most important thing about me. It is to be Christ, not national identity, not being an American or politics or any other identity marker that defines God's people the most. And Jesus pushes this image of the vine further by comparing two types of branches, okay? He is the vine, we are the branches, he says, and there's two kind of branches. There's the useless branches, and there's the fruitful branches. In John 15, 4, he says, a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. What does it mean to abide in Christ? What does it look like to abide? It's kind of like nobody would buy a car without an engine. A car without an engine is like a big paperweight, right? No one's going to buy an oven for their kitchen without a heating source inside. That's like an empty cabinet. It's kind of like Jesus is saying, a person who says, I'm a Christian, who's not connected to the vine, who does not have the life of Christ flowing out of them, is like an empty vessel. It's like a, a car without an engine. It's like an oven without a heat source. So our religion, our ethics, even our church life, if it is not filled with, and found in Christ alone, it's of no use to anyone. I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the ethic of Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Now, how do we abide? Jesus points to two things. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, and if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. It's like two sides of the same exact coin of abiding. One, being filled with God's words and then living them out. This is abiding. Being filled with God's words and then living them out, obeying them, applying them. Getting God's word in us and then living it out day in and day out to be a follower of Christ is to bear Christ's name. And that is more than just a label. It's a whole new ethic for a countercultural way of life. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We are to love one another in a self-sacrificing kind of love, a love that's willing to seek the good of others above our own. A love that doesn't fight for my rights or fight for my way, but is willing to lay down my rights and my way in service of others. I think it's interesting, like, 
right in the middle of this passage, Jesus um, changes the language. Like the language Jesus used to describe his followers changes in the middle of this passage. Jesus first called his disciples servants. And then there's this shift. And Jesus calls his disciples friends. In verse 14, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. God's love moves us like from the servant's quarters to the dinner table. It means we can move from fear that we're letting God down to a confident sort of intimacy with God through Christ. Romans 8 says this, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. John Wesley, who's the founder of the Methodists, talked about how he had this, uh, he went through a massive transition. And he said that this massive transition in his life was central to his faith. He once saw himself simply as God's servant, but slowly he was like awakened to the fact that he, the reality was that the Bible called him God's son. And he actually spoke of this transition in his life as his true conversion. In his life later on, he said he wanted the same thing for every follower of Christ. He said this, exhort him to press on by all possible means till he passes from faith to faith, from the faith of a servant to the faith of a son, from the spirit of bondage unto fear, the spirit of childlike love. Sometimes I wonder if our energy, whether it's the Christian right or the Christian left, sometimes I wonder if our passion and our energy is fueled by this thought that we're like servants, like we got to work for God, like we got to do as if we can't be trusting children, that this is God's good world. And yes, we play our part, in following him and bearing witness to his kingdom. But that weight is not on our shoulders because we trust that ultimately it is God who is making all things new. Do you see yourself as a servant or as a son? Like as a hired hand with God or as a beloved child? Do you see yourself like in the servant's quarters or at the dining table? What's defining you these days? The love of God moves us from the servant's quarters to the dinner table. There's an interesting thing right at the end of this section of scripture. Um, Jesus does this thing where he says, you know, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me. It's interesting. If the world hates you. Notice if. It is conditional. In other words, 
as followers of God in the way of Jesus, we're not to like go into the world expecting to meet only hatred and opposition and gear ourselves up for it. We are not to seek out suffering and persecution or wear it like a badge of honor. But just like we are called to serve others because Jesus himself served, we can expect that because he suffered, we too will suffer. What does that mean? What does that look like? Of course, in all different contexts, it looks like different things. But we have to, Jesus is saying, we have to be willing to endure as he endured. And in our context, that often means surrendering our rights as he did in order to serve others. It means laying down our lives for the sake of others. It means using the power that you have, not as a cause for guilt, but as an opportunity to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. You know, there has been a lot of conversation in our world about whether or not American Christians can call themselves persecuted when they experience opposition to Christian views and values. I think we should be careful not to equate and experience under the protections of rel religious freedom in this country to what Christians who face martyrdom for their faith experience, like not the same thing. The church may be in decline in this nation, but it's not in trouble because it is in God's good hands. The leader of the church is Jesus. And Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. You know, often when people are lamenting, when folks are lamenting about the decline of the church, it often is related more to a sadness over the loss of cultural power. And you could say it is true that Christendom is dead. We are living in a secularized world. The project of Christendom was really about Christians attempting to align um, like align, them, align with power. It was the attempt of Christians to Christianize the world through like alignment with power structures, the power of empire. That's Christendom. Christians attempting to Christianize the world through kind of a complicity with the power of empires. First, it was the power of a Christian emperor named Constantine. Then, Later, it's with this idea that America is a Christian nation. But can we just zoom way back from the interests of an empire, any empire? Because when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we realize the teachings of Jesus are never going to fit nicely with the values of an empire. The teachings of Jesus are never going to fit nicely with the values of a global superpower. And if we try to synchronize them too much in an effort to, like, defend a nation as Christian, what we do is we water down the radical teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus are often 
incompatible with the values of empire, any empire. But here's the thing, friends, that's not a reason to despair. That is a reason for great hope. Hope rooted not in this nation or any nation, but hope rooted in Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again for all nations. And I know a lot of folks, a lot of Christ followers are feeling disillusioned right now about the state of the church, about the state of the world. But let us remember that sometimes disillusionment, it's actually about losing my illusions. And that's not all entirely bad. Christendom is dead, but Christ is risen. And what may appear to some as like, a, you know, what might appear to some Christians as like a loss, like a loss of cultural power or whatever over time in this world, it's actually an opportunity. It's an opportunity for the church to return to its radical roots. Because the church has always been its best when it's on the fringe, when it's on the underside of power. I mean, when you read the Bible, it's like we have to remember that so much of the Bible was written by people on the underside of power. And for those of us reading the Bible from the middle of like a global superpower, it's almost like we kind of have to read the Bible like standing on our heads. One of the reasons that, that you could say like the Christian right and the Christian left get it wrong is because they are tying their hope to power, to the power of empire. And Jesus leads us in an altogether different way. Like tying the gospel to the interests of an empire, any empire, has some deeply compromising effects on the gospel message. It is not the task of the church to remind everybody, like, this is a Christian nation. It's not the task of the church to battle for the soul of the nation. It's not the task of the church to make America great again. Those are partisan passions. The task of the church today is to proclaim Christ and his kingdom come, to live in the rule and reign of Jesus, and to not be swept up into the values and mindset and rule of America or any other empire. The task of the church today, it's like it's to make Christianity countercultural again. The gospel is absolutely political, but it is not partisan. The gospel is about proclaiming the kingdom of heaven, and it just does not fit nicely with the values of empire. It's about a different kingdom altogether. And so once again, I just ask, what's defining you these days? The word cult and the word culture share the same root. And both cult and culture have to do with this question, 
what and who are people worshiping? And everybody's worshiping something. Even people who would say, I'm not religious at all. Everyone is worshiping something. The question just is, what is it that you are worshiping? Every culture and every country, including ours, has its idols. Idols of security and comfort, idols of materialism and military might, idols of individualism. But Christ comes along and says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And if you are all tangled up in the red, white, and blue, no matter which side, you will be worshiping the idols of empire and not the face of Jesus. You will bear the fruit of empire and not the fruit of the spirit. And once we untether ourselves from the interests of the empire, once we step back from the partisan politics and the idols of our country, we begin to see how radical and countercultural the teachings of Jesus actually are. I mean, just think about the radical teachings of Jesus. Dallas Willard one time said, uh, the reason Christians fight so much about politics and different things is because taking the teachings of Jesus seriously is just way too hard. Like, let's, let's just, that's just way too hard, so let's fight about these other things. I mean, think about these radical teachings. Enemies, Jesus says, love them. Violence, renounce it. You got money, share it. Foreigners, welcome them. Sinners, forgive them. These are the kind of radical ideas that will always be opposed by the principalities and powers of this world. These are the kind of radical teachings that will always make you a little bit of a Jesus freak if you take them seriously. They just will. These are the kind of radical ideas that followers of Jesus are called to announce and embrace and enact. Jesus is Lord. That means Caesar is not. This is my one hope. And the degree to which the church is faithful to Jesus and his radical ideas is like the degree to which the church embodies a faith that's countercultural. So now that I've thoroughly offended all of you, <laughs> may I ask you again, what is defining you these days? Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And may your kingdom come and your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For God is yours, you, you and yours. That is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Would you give us more and more and more of a passion for your kingdom come? 
Would you give us more and more of a vision for life in your kingdom and all the many implications of being aliens and strangers here in this world? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Everybody said? Amen. Amen.